That's amazing. I'm, I'm just a little bit moved here. I was just thinking that uh, it's stunning to realize that this morning we're in the presence of the living God. You know, I mean, it just, it just uh, when, when it hits you that God is here with us and we're in his presence, uh, and it's so physically real, uh, it's, it's just moving. I mean, I, I almost couldn't stop crying back there, you know, as I'm listening to the songs and, uh, and how much that means that we're here with him. Um, this is our last session together, and we just want to thank you, first of all, just for the immense privilege of uh, being with you. Um, gosh, Patricia and I were thinking we could spend all the hours for days and weeks with you guys just talking in conversation at meals and uh, breaks and things like this. Uh, you all have uh, extended so much uh, love to us, and it's, it's the kind of love that the world around you just absolutely needs to feel and, uh, and, and receive from you. And I, I've just been overwhelmed also by your, uh, your heart to learn, uh, the incredible and sometimes very challenging questions you are asking us, you know, uh, throughout our breaks and times together. And thank you for just kind of reaching out and feeling uh, open enough to come and uh, share some of those questions and thoughts. And some of you, you know, have had unbelievable challenges in your life, and we understand that, and we appreciate uh, your willingness to share those things, and we hope that we've been of some small uh, help uh, in your lives along that journey. Do you have any, just any parting thoughts there? I mean, just any? Oh, it's just been fabulous. It's just, I'm so excited about today and spending time with individuals and hearing your stories and just spending time with, with you and so grateful for the people that uh, for those of you that have already talked with me and just shared your hearts with me, and what a privilege. I just love you all and just feel so loved by you and so uh, grateful to God. Yeah. We just, uh, I just wanted Patricia to share a story uh, because I think that one of the things that we, we've been trying to share along the way is that God is at God is moving. God is at work. And uh, earlier I said, you know, the fields are white into harvest. And sometimes we just, we just need to be able to recognize the moments. And that we're kind of like the sower that's out there sowing the seeds. And, you know, and there's some places where you're going to be able to tend the garden and really minister deeply in people's lives and over a period of time. And other times there are just those moments when you're like Philip that's taken up and dropped on the side of a road and here comes this Ethiopian eunuch that's reading the scriptures and said, I can't understand it. And he gets in the chariot, talks to him, and then God whisks him away. And there's going to be just moments like that, you know, that we have to be alert to the long haul relationships and investments, as well as those moments where God just says, you're here for this moment. And, and here's how I want you to speak. And so I wanted to share, uh, have Patricia share this story uh, because it's just an incredible story that happened a few months back. So, okay. Well, this morning I woke up at 4.30 and uh, ended up in the, uh, the bathroom of the Comfort Inn writing down what God wanted me to share this morning. <laughs> you ever do that? You know. Okay. I got it. So I brought it up here just to bring up what God wanted me to do. I don't really need the, but anyway, it was good. Okay, so just to put it in context, I've shared a little bit about my journey on, with cancer, and uh, it was in October of 2021 when I discovered the tumor and then couldn't get the diagnosis until November 12th. 
uh, because of the medical system being so backed up. And so it was during those six weeks, just my journey of faith with God, with his Holy Spirit, and shared a little bit about that in my workshop and uh, elsewhere. But um, so those were just weeks. Those were incredible weeks of uh, me and God and running on my dusty roads and asking God all my questions, bringing forth all my fears day after day, a lot of repetition, a lot of listening to God. Uh, what does this mean for my life? What's getting ready to happen to me? And living in that, that unknown. And I think that um, what, I just, what I determined through God, I didn't determine it. God spoke it. He said, don't allow this to rob you of joy. Don't allow this to crush the days that are ahead right now. I want to meet you here while you wait. Don't let fear and dread destroy you at this time. Rest in me. Lean in me. God said, I'm going to bless you through this. He didn't say, I'm going to use you. You know, we use that word, right? God, use me. And I get it. And that's a valid word. But he didn't say, um, I'm going to use you. To use you in cancer is kind of a weird thing, isn't it? I mean, in hard things. But God said, I want to bless you. And then through you, that blessing is going to overflow. And that was, that was his promise to me. I'm going to bless you first with me. I'm going to bless your family. And then as you go, just take me with you. And I will be the blessing to other people as you go. And so that was in October. Um, then in November, that's when I got the diagnosis, mid-November. Came home, told Dan, dropped the cancer bone uh, on the house. And that's exactly what it is. And, uh, but I told Dan, this is not going to rob us of the things that we have ahead in these next few months. I don't know what it means, but this is not going to steal all of that. We've got wonderful things that God has planned for us in the rest of this year. It's not going to do that. So then it was December 1st that Dan and I sat in front of Dr. Sharon, my surgeon. That was my first appointment. And... Um, <clears throat> It was our anniversary. I don't know. It was our anniversary. <laughs> 40, I don't know how many years. Three. 43. Okay. <laughs> 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 That's I'm too young to have been married 43 years. Anyway, so, <laughs> so we sat in front of Dr. Sharon, and by that point, I was so ready to go. It's like, come on, let's get on with this. I've been waiting. I've been knowing I had cancer since October 5th, so... Let's just get on with this. And Dr. Sharon turned out she was a believer. She's just one of the top surgeons in our city. And so um, I couldn't believe that I had gotten in, gotten an appointment. Some people had said you wouldn't get in with Dr. Sharon. I did. But um, so we sat there, and she comes in. And the first thing, you were sitting there. And of course, Dan's still in shock. And so uh, she says, oh, Mr. and Mrs. Waldridge, I'm so sorry that you're here. And she's got her thing that she says, right? I mean, this is the worst thing, and so sorry that you are here and you're facing this, and she's got her whole spiel. And when she stopped and paused, I just said to her, oh, no, Dr. Sharon, you don't understand. I am so happy to be here. I am so ready to have your help. I need your help, and I am so excited to be here. And she just looked at us and she said, no one has ever said that in my office before. <laughs> and we had the sweetest time with her. I didn't know she was a Christian, but we had the sweetest time with her. We told her it was our anniversary. <laughs> oh, what a funny thing. And so we, just, um, 
Then she did an exam, and then we sat together, just the two of us, and we prayed. She prayed for me. Isn't that sweet? It's just God's blessing to me. And we had a sweet journey together, Dr. Sharon and I, uh, over the, the next uh, six months. But uh, along the way, God just said, all I want you to do is just bring me with you wherever you go. You don't know what lies ahead. There's uncertainty. There's dread. It's all that stuff that just pours out of you. Just take me with you wherever you go. I think one of the first things was when I was in uh, the chemo infusions, and you go and, and you sit there for about four hours or so, and you have one nurse that, that kind of monitors you and is in and out, and Holly was her name. Just this sweet, sweet little girl. And as I got to know Holly, and I think she did three of my infusions, but she's a... She was engaged, she was looking forward to getting married, but they had waited because her husband was facing uh, a, a serious illness, her fiance, and so she just shared her story with me. And so I just brought, even though I was perplexed, even though I felt pressed in, and yet I was so excited to be there, it didn't drive me to despair. And that's what trials want to do in our lives, don't they? They want to drive us to despair. And we just see a world where people are being driven to despair uh, by so many different things. And that's not what the Lord wants for me. He says, you can be perplexed. You'll be pressed in. But you don't have to be crushed. You have to be driven to despair. So I went through um, all the, the treatments of chemo, and then it was time for surgery. And so um, you go to surgery, you go to the hospital, and if you've ever had surgery, you, know, you sit in this room, this little draped off and all this stuff, and you sit there for hours and hours, and you have a, a nurse that is kind of in and out and taking care of you, and of course I heard her whole life story. I mean, we're there half a day, right? And so, you know, her divorce and this new house that she's got and her kids, and, and then we remodeled the whole house together. We just had a really great time while we're waiting, and Dan was kind of in and out, and um, so um, so there I am, and then all these doctors are coming in and out, you know, the anesthesiologists and all that, and you're signing things to, to say that if they kill you, you're okay That's with right. that. And, um, <laughs> whatever. So let's just, we just get this, get on the and uh, so then, um, so finally, uh, this head pops through the, the curtain, and uh, she's obviously a redhead. Uh, her name is Ruby. <laughs> I love it. I love Ruby. And so, she, but she's all capped, right? I mean, she's she's all gowned and masked, and all you can see are these eyes and a little bit of red hair. You know, she's okay. So she's hi. I'm Ruby. Okay, and it's time for surgery. Okay, and uh, give me your birth date to make sure I'm taking the right person. Okay, uh, so. Um, so then she looks over and she sees Dan and she says, uh, what did she say? She said, is this, you want to say goodbye? She right. told us to, I don't know if she asked, you don't ask if this is your husband anymore because you assume, you can't assume that these people are married, um, right? Anyway, so she just looks over and you want to say goodbye. And so Dan gets up and, no, I don't really want to say goodbye. <laughs> I'll see you later. <laughs> uh, but I, never mind. And so she comes, Dan comes over and just gives me a little kiss on the forehead. And um, I, I said, you know, this is my husband. And so Ruby's all cheerful and she's behind my, my whatever I'm on, this bed sort of thing on wheels. And so, um, okay, we're off. We're on our way to surgery. And she's so cheerful. And, 
And so we go outside, we, the curtain opens, and you enter into this freeway of the surgery department there, right? I mean, it is just wow. And you've been in this quiet little room all day, and all of a sudden you're out, and people are flying around. And, um, and so I'm laying there looking at the ceiling, and, um, and so we turn and start down the freeway in that direction. And so um, Ruby is going slow because there's all this traffic in front of us. And so she leans down, and I hear her say, um, how long have you been married? And I probably told her the wrong number, but it's for <laughs> <laughs> Well, she says, and then we're starting to pick up speed because I can see the light. The lights up above uh, on the ceiling kind of getting going by a little bit faster. And you hear all these voices. People are, sounds like they're yelling. They're probably not, but they're all the nurses, doctors. And so on we go down this, down this fir first part of the, of the corridor. And, um, and then we have to pause and slow down. And we've got, we're going to go through this series of, of big double doors. And every time you do, you have to stop and Ruby goes, Bam! Right into the handicap, you know, the thing that automatically opens it, right? And so, so you pause, and I mean, she's really picking up speed. She's an expert. She knows exactly where we're going. And so then you go, and she, bam, and uh, and then you hear someone call it. Oh, Ruby, I'll get that door for you. Don't worry. And so she stands there, and then I see Ruby's face, right, come over uh, on top of me, and she's down on on top of me, looking at me, and she says. Um, What's the secret? <laughs> and of course, I know what she's saying, but I'm just incredulous. Like, I'm going to surgery. <laughs> What's the secret? And there's like, okay, where are we? Bam. Oh, whoop. <laughs> we go, and I'm going down this corridor, and the lights are flashing right by. Right, I'm looking, and I'm thinking, all I can do is say, Jesus, what are you thinking? What am I supposed to say? I mean, there have been times in my life when people have said, what's the secret to a long, happy marriage? And, and you sit down and talk about it. I'm on my way to surgery. Are you kidding me? And what do you want me to say? And so I have one corridor to think this through, and during that time, there is only one thing, there is only one thing that comes in my mind. And I thought, that is so, it just seems really inadequate word. But just say the name. That's all he said to me. That's the only answer he gave me. Just say the name. So we are racing down this corridor, and then we, Stop, bam, she's hitting another set of double doors. And now, Ruby's face is by my side. Like she's not over, she's here. Because she wants to hear exactly what I'm gonna say. And I said to her, Ruby, all I can tell you is Jesus Christ. Okay. <laughs> Up we go, doors are open, we fly through this next corridor, and then she starts to speak, and she says, I've just gone through, I've gone through a divorce, and I've just gotten remarried, and I think I'm on the right track now. Okay, 
lights flashing behind her. We slow down at the next corridor, and I bam again, and I said, do you have any children? Yes, I have three, and he has three. But I think, I think we're going to make it. Wow. What a blessing. You know, Jesus says, don't let it drive you to despair. Just take me with you wherever you go. And if all you can do is speak the name, just speak the name. And so all of a sudden, bam, the next set of doors open. We're in the operating room. I'm surrounded by six people starting to tell me what they're getting ready to do. And Ruby's gone. And Ruby's gone forever. But wow, what a moment. You know, God didn't use me. God just said, bring me with you. And I will bless you there, and I will bless others right there where you are. That's great. Thank you. Yep. I'll bring this to you. Later. Yeah, you can. <laughs> just being in that moment, isn't it? You know, and, and, and God wants us to live that way, and that's the way doors open and opportunities open, and we just never know where the seeds are going to go. We'll never see Ruby again. All you, all you can see about her, of her was this much, right? Um, but we just trust that the seed that was planted will someday you know, bear fruit in her life. What I'm going to do uh, today is um, really take you a, a little bit more on, as, a, as a testimony to maybe share some, share some of the path that we've been on and, uh, and trust that in it you will find maybe some practical things for you all uh, as you're going ahead. You know, we, we began the, the, the day, uh, Sunday, I guess, talking about the fact that God, in this crazy world, God's chosen each of us at this point in time, and that God wants to be our God, and that God wants us to bear fruit, and he's already prepared those works beforehand for us to walk in them. And, and Patricia shared about being on that dusty road and, and how God prepared Abraham, you know, to learn to lean into the Lord and to become the, the man that would become the blessing to the world. And, you know, and I think yesterday we talked about the central role of the scriptures in that, how we have to become people of the word and, and that our lives are, are fashioned and rooted in the word so that it can bear fruit that's um, in keeping with the word. So I wanted to take that a little bit further today and just understand, again, just for maybe to give you a bit broader perspective on life and how it can unfold from here on out as you all are beginning your journey and stepping out into the world. And, um, you know, when you think about this, is that very few of us understand that we've been chosen by God, <laughs> you know, at an early age, every once in a while, there's somebody that's little and say, I knew from the time I was little that I was. But for a lot of us, we come into the world and we begin our journey not knowing that we've been chosen by God. But I hope that after today, after this week, none of you would walk away feeling not, not knowing that you're not chosen, right? 
I don't know if that's proper grammar or not, but, but you get the idea, right? That I, I want you to leave here understanding that each of you individually has been chosen and that you're hearing that in your heart and, and beginning to kind of understand what that means. And, and as we were talking, you know, what we've been encouraging you to do is grow. Begin by growing right now, growing in your knowledge of God, you know, growing in his, your knowledge of his purpose and your worldview, but begin growing. You are kind of at that point where, you know, the shoots are coming out of the ground. And, and so what I want you to do here, let's see if this works here, is, is grow right here. Grow where God has planted you. Many times I think people feel like, you know, I, I need to get to this other place here so that I could begin to focus on my walk with God or I get, you know, I can become fruitful here. It's no accident that you're right here. And, and so begin to grow right here, right now where God has planted you and learn how to hear the voice of God, walk with God and, and, and learn to serve others and, and, and begin to invest in the lives of other people. Learn here and now. And what you're learning here and now, you're going to be able to translate into new situations as life unfolds before you. And you're going to begin to see life then through the promises of God. You're going to see your future not as kind of a, a series of, say, career steps or uh, the advice of all these people about where you can go. But you're going to begin to see your future unfold through the promises of God. And one of the really key one of the really interesting verses here, I guess I point that way, <laughs> is, is here in Jeremiah 29, 10 through 14. If you wouldn't mind just turning over to turning to that passage here for a second. I know it's up here on the screen, but I want you to look in your word here and just kind of maybe note that in your Bible, okay? And as we talked yesterday about the time when the word was lost, Jeremiah was in that period of time. And Jeremiah was the prophet that God called to speak to Judah prior to their captivity and exile by, to Babylon. And God called him not to escape, but to endure the whole process. And so he lived through the fall of Jerusalem and, 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 and the, uh, the, you know, the, the movement of the uh, exiles off to, to Babylon. And, and this is a remarkable passage, and I want to kind of bring this, I want, to, I want you to understand that context because a lot of times believers will look at this verse and not understand the context out of which it emerges. For in, in verse 10 it says, For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. So he's saying that you're going to be taken off to exile and it's going to take 70 years before you're back in the land. And he says, for I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil to give you a future and a hope. Now, can you imagine that? You're getting ready to be taken off into exile, into a hostile nation. And God says, I know the plans I have for you. 
And these plans are to give you a future and a hope. It doesn't sound very good, though, does it? Knowing what's about to happen. And it says, then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I've driven you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. And I think that what I, what I love about this is that a lot of times when we're going through challenging times, and if, and if we understand that we're probably living in a time where we're becoming, we're in exile in, in, in this world, that we don't let the fact that we're in exile or that we've been carted off into captivity be the determiner of how we feel about how life is going. But that we lean into the promises of God and understand that even in the midst of these sorts of times, that God has a plan for us. That it's for our welfare, to give us a future and a hope. And a part of that is that these very circumstances are going to cause us to call out to God in a way that we've never called out to God before. So we want to view our future through the promises of God and not the circumstances we're in. Now, th zooming back out again here in terms of life, and this was uh, based on some studies that were done by um, uh, a leadership uh, expert and, and, and theologian, uh, a guy named Bobby Clinton, um, that talked about the development of the life of leaders and, and, and people in the scriptures. And, and I share this a lot with uh, my own uh, secular audiences in terms of helping, helping them understand how they're going to grow and develop. You're initially going to have sovereign foundations in your life. Every one of you has a sovereign foundation. You didn't choose your parents. You didn't choose your heritage. You didn't choose you know, your early life experiences or the gifts and abilities that you have. You know, you didn't choose the color of your hair, whatever it is. You, these were sovereign things that God put in place to make you who you are. And then, though, as you, as you respond to the Lord, you're going to go through an early stage where, and it'll continue on the rest of your life, but you're going to go through a period where you're going to focus on inner life growth. And, 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 and you all are there in many ways, Right? I mean, you are just starting out in so many ways in your journey, and so many of the things that you're dealing with as you're studying the scriptures and encouraging one another is, is the development of your inner life and the foundation. And that's why we put so much emphasis here, as Patricia and I are sharing, on, on the role of just developing that inner life. And then what'll, what's going to happen is that as your inner life grows and gets stronger, you're going to mature in your ability to influence and, inter and serve and minister to other people. That if, if you don't have that inner life, you're not going to have anything with which to influence. And so you're going to, what's going to happen is that initially, you know, you might feel like you're ineffective and you're having a hard time in terms of ministering to people or sharing people, you know, or whatever it is. But that, that will grow. There, these things kind of, there's kind of a sequence of these things. And then, basically, you end up 
moving into a phase where there's you're, you're just your life just matures and that just takes time where in terms of the wisdom of living you know and in the scriptures in the hebrew when it talks about wisdom the hebrew translation for the word wisdom is skill in living it's not being smart <laughs> and not knowing a lot of stuff there are a lot of smart people that have no skill in life <laughs> right and so what God is saying is that he wants us now to not only have this inner life foundation, but also to then begin to grow in our ability to, you know, to serve and minister to other people. And, and then all of that built upon the fact that your life just becomes mature in a whole way because you've gone through trials, you've gone through experiences, you've done through things, that your ability to impact others and be, make a difference in the world will just only increase over life. And then finally, there's going to be a point in time later in life that I, I, I see with people that there's finally a point where there's a convergence. It's like you have all, these, all of these kind of different experiences that come together and your gifts and abilities and experiences and the place that you have the greatest impact all begin, begin to come together. Um, I guess I'm, I'm a really a, a slow learner because I feel like, okay, that's just beginning with me. And somebody was asking me about my career path, and I said, man, I haven't had a career path ever. It's like my life has been just like a series of gigs, you know, <laughs> that somehow now all of that stuff comes together, and I feel like I'm right in the zone now, you know, with the Lord. Um, and I think that that happens a lot nowadays. So just, just to give you a little perspective that where you are, is going to build, and God has a long view for the development of your life. And what we want to do is say, stay faithful in the foundational things and stay with it. And you're going. What's what's going? What God's going to do is continually increase and continually deepen your life over time. Now, along the way, you're going to have some hidden years. You are going to have these periods in life where you're going to feel like God has lost your zip code. You know, that he, he is no longer knows your GPS coordinates in terms of where you are. But you see that continually in the scriptures, don't you? You know, Moses went, you know, he, he's raised in Egypt, right, in a miraculous way. And then he tries to take some matters into his own hands and he gets run out of Egypt. And he spends the next 40 years, he's about 40 when he gets, he run, he escapes Egypt. And he spends the next 40 years, basically, tending another man's sheep, squeezing sand between his toes until God calls him again and says, okay, now it's time for you to go back and, and, and we're going to deliver Israel. But those, those, those hidden years were invaluable in the formation of his character and his heart. And, and, and so wherever you go in the scriptures, you're going to find that leaders and people that God used are going to have hidden years where God pulls them away and says, we need to talk. We need, to, you know, just you and me. Even the Apostle Paul spent 12 years in Arabia, and we don't know what went on there. But before he reemerged as the Apostle Paul, you know, that we know. And so know that, just, just be prepared for the fact that there may be times down the road here in the years ahead where it's going to feel like it's hidden, where your life might not feel like I'm making an impact right now. But stay faithful to the Lord and keep learning from Him and keep building into His life. 
And if we had more time, I could share, you know, from my own life on some of those things. And probably in these hidden years and along the way, you're going to have some what I just call boundary events. They're life tests. And they're not going to be tests that anybody else out there knows, but you and God know. And so you're going to have some, sometimes they're just tests of integrity. Are you going to do the right thing here? Nobody would know if you didn't, but before God, you know that it's a test of whether you're going to do the right thing or not. Other times, they're going to be tests of purpose. You know, you're saying, I'm committed to the Lord. I want to be His. I want God to use me. I want to make a difference in the world. And you're going to come to a point, it's going to be inside your heart again, where you're making a decision. Am I going to keep going down that path? or I'm going to go choose some other priorities in life. Right? And a lot of times there's a lot of, a lot of temptation, a lot of pressure to divert from that path. Even Jesus was tested that way, right? In, in the wilderness with Satan. You know, I says, well, you know, I could, I, could, I could put you in a good place, Jesus, you know, if you'll, if you'll, if you'll follow me. And then there's just a test of commitment. It's related to, I think, the, the idea of purpose. But sometimes what happens is that we, we say we're committed, we're dedicated, but at some point in time, what we do is that we're still heading in the same direction, but what we do is that we throttle back and we start moving forward in kind of a half-hearted way rather than in a fully committed way. And you'll know that too. So I share these things just to say, be ready for them. <laughs> These are coming. These are coming. And then you're going to have crucible experiences. And what I mean by crucible experiences are some of the things that Patricia was sharing that we've gone through. You know, when you think about when she was sharing about the fire, this is what we walk back to. And then in that three-month period of time or so, you had, you know, what had happened with Annie and, you know, prior to that, what she didn't share was as the house was burning down, Abigail was giving birth to our first grandson, and then she almost died uh, because of just some things that were missed medically. And you're thinking, what's dangerous about giving birth to a baby? But she nearly died. And so we're thinking there that we've got one, the joy of a grandson, a daughter that's close to death, another daughter that's almost been murdered, and, and this fire is going on in the background, that's a crucible experience, I think. <laughs> right? But I think that one of the lessons that comes out of it is that it really shows, I think, it, it's really an opportunity for the grace of God to pour forth. There was a time previously in our lives where we were going through something like this and... Um, our neighbors came around and said, you know, <clears throat> uh, we understand what's going on. And, you know, and we were talking about it. And our conclusion was, you guys should either be dead or divorced by now. <laughs> what is it that's keeping your life together? What is it? Now, we were desperate. And, and I would tell you that at that point in time in my life, 
I, I was the first time in my life that I, I had come to the point where I was thinking I've got to wake up every morning and I have to make a conscious decision whether God is for real or whether this is just a big giant cosmic joke. And that my life depended on how I answered that question every morning. And some years later, I was sharing that state of mind and state of despair with a, a friend of mine. And he said, you know, what was happening in that instance is that you had lost hope, but your hope didn't lose you. And what people were saying is that, as Paul was saying here in Corinthians, is that it's not the vessel. It's, you know, the, the vessel is chipped and broken, but it's, it's the glory that's in there, right? We have this treasure in earthen vessels. And so a lot of times in our brokenness and in the things that we suffer and endure, what people see is not the vessel, but the hope that's within us. And the Japanese uh, have an interesting uh, art here called kintsugi. And uh, what they, you know, like you drop, uh, you break a teacup. And we would probably discard it or just kind of, <clears throat> you know, use super glue to patch it up or something like this. But what the Japanese would do is that they would take the, the, the teacup and then use gold to repair the cracks and reassemble it. And they said that there, there was a beauty in something that looked like it had lived through things, right? And, 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 and there's, there's a beauty in this, isn't there? And I think that's like, it's like our lives. It's like we try to paper over, you know, uh, and cover up the cracks and the faults because what we want to do as a part of our testimony is to demonstrate perfection <laughs> and human perfection and having our act together, right? We know the answers. And really, what we're doing, what we want to do, though, is be authentic in the sense, accept our place in life humbly as human beings that are very flawed and broken, but at the same time that have this unbelievable treasure within us. And so I think that, you know, if we understand that, then whatever you're suffering, whatever you're going through, is really not just for your benefit, but what it does is that it creates doors for light to shine through to the world around us. It gives us an ability to identify with others. The other part of it is that it just helps you be alert to the others around you. And, and, and I, Patricia, I just can't even begin to describe how God's created that alertness in her. I, I, would, be, I would be like with Annie someplace, we'd be at a store, and Patricia would be checking out at the the cash register, and I'd bump Annie, and I said, watch this, it's about to happen. And she says, what? I said, just watch this, it's about to happen. And I see Patricia talking to the cashier, and the next thing I know, there's tears streaming down the cashier's eyes. <laughs> and as we walk out of the store, I would tell Patricia, new best friend? Yeah, new best friend. <laughs> but I, because I think that what happens is as you go through things, what it does is that it, it creates in you an alertness and a sensitivity to the people around you. You can sense it. And, and as God gives you that ability to sense that more, then you're able to enter into, you know, uh, the lives of people in, in ways that are surprising. All of this to say is that God is writing a story in you. He's the author and perfecter of your faith. And every one of you, what God is doing is that he's writing this magnificent, eternal story through you that he wants to tell to the world.
And when we get to heaven, you're going to be the story that's going to be shared about what Jesus has done for you for all of eternity. And so it's a glorious story. So many times we're trying to write the story ourselves and edit it, you know, and, make, and give it a Hollywood ending or something like this. But what God has in mind is a story that he's writing through you. And so what we want to do is just put ourselves into his arms to, to let him write on the blank pages of our lives. So this is kind of where we begin to kind of say, what do we do with all this stuff that we've been learning this week? And, um, and, and so I want to kind of take you through um, some of my journey from when uh, I was a student. Yesterday I shared about my coming to Christ and kind of my initial exposure to the scriptures and sharing my testimony, but there's, there's more to this. And, I, and my hope in, in this is that you would take away maybe one or two things that would be practical to you in terms of how do you take what you're learning here, what you're hearing here, and take it back into, into the context of the world that you're in. First thing I would say right away is that it begins with dedication. You have to make a dedicated commitment to the Lord. Romans 12.1 says, I appeal to you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is spiritual worship. But the idea here is, based upon everything that the Lord has done, Paul is saying, what we need to do is how do we respond to that? Well, he said what we need to do is just dedicate ourselves, put ourselves on the altar, give ourselves wholly to him. And I would challenge you to think about that for yourself. Are you giving parts of your life? Are you giving bits of your life? You know, are you giving certain sections, you know? Or are you, have you come to the point where you said, I am putting my entire being on the altar and it is yours, Lord. And this is an offering of worship to you so that you can prove what the will of God is, what is good and acceptable and perfect through me. I, I pray that, not, that no one here would leave this week without having made that commitment, without having consciously said, Lord, let's do business. I'm giving myself to you. I'm dedicating myself to you, unreservedly, completely. It may feel scary, but you know, you're putting yourself in really good hands, aren't you, when you do that? The second thing then is, <clears throat> is this question. I, I came to the conclusion really early because of the people that were investing in me that the key to changing the world was being able to change one person. That was what brought me to Christ. And so, and I felt like God had chosen me, and, and, and that then my, my responsibility was to say, okay, invest in another. So I told you I didn't know anybody on this campus. So I literally began to walk around the University of Texas campus with 45,000 other people out there, except for the few people that I knew now, and I would say, okay, Lord, 
you chose me. Now I know there's at least one other guy out here that you've chosen. Where is he? You know? And so I would walk around the campus praying every day and saying, where is he? <laughs> where is he? You know, and I would, I would challenge you to walk around your campus or your spheres of influence and say, God, I, I, I know he's there. I know she's there. Where is he? Where is she? Lead me to that person that you've chosen. Pretty simple prayer, isn't it? But think about what it would be like to kind of go back to where you are and just walk around and just say, God, where is he? Where is she? And begin to be committed to God's purpose and, and strategy of changing the world through the life of one person. And then begin to invest in that person. And the scriptures say that the smallest one will become a thousand, and the least one, a mighty nation. We see the world through the lens of, of, of what that person can become. So I want to share this picture with you. This was taken a year ago, December. And um, it had been on my heart to do this for some time. And so we finally pulled the trigger. And what I did was that I called up these guys, which was the first group of guys that God led me to, to disciple 50 years ago. And I called them all up and I said, hey, we haven't been together in decades. And in some cases, we hadn't spoken to each other in decades. And I said, would you, like, would you guys like to get together? And I said, we have no agenda for the week, except I want each of you in turn to share what God has been doing through your life all these years, what God is doing in your life today, and how God is leading you to finish the race strongly. And it, it, I mean, it took like 24 hours for everybody was like, we're in. <laughs> and we had, we had three of the most incredible days of just hearing what God had done. And to me, I'm just stunned that 50 years later, every one of these guys has been faithful in walking with the Lord. And, um, but it all started with the guy that's my, to my immediate uh, right in the brown jacket. His name is Eric. And after two years, maybe, of walking around the campus saying, where is he? Where is he? I was at freshman orientation one summer. And, um, and I was walking through the dorm, and, and there was this guy who's kind of playing solitaire by himself, looking totally lost and frightened about the experience of coming to the university. And so I plopped down on the couch across from him and introduced myself <clears throat> and began to talk and, ask, and, and began to ask whether he was interested in spiritual things and things like this. And he kind of mumbled uh, some responses and clearly was uncomfortable with me talking to him there. And, but, he, but, you know, I think maybe just maybe to get, get me off his back, he said, oh, yeah, I'd be interested in something like that, um, you know, to kind of study the scriptures or things like this. And we laughed. <clears throat> so first day of class, I come back over to the campus, and I'm walking through the, this dormitory, and by golly, here comes Eric walking down the hall, and I'm coming down the hall this way. 
And he looks at me, I recognize him right away, then he looks at me and he's thinking, oh crap, <laughs> how did he find me? <laughs> but but we, we had a, we had a, a, a good conversation and, and we decided, hey, we'll get together this week and you know, maybe spend some time in the scriptures together and, and talk. I had no idea whether he was a believer or not, but you know, I thought, well, okay, we'll start there. And what happened was then that he, he really, as we got into the scriptures together, talking, praying, I, he had just such a heart of love and, and really was just beginning his journey with Christ. And we just, we just re, we really developed this uh, huge bond. And, and then for the next year or so, we tried, we tried to we'd talk to people about Christ and all kinds of things were happening and we didn't see much. And then one day at the end of that year, he said, you know, come home with me. Come home with me. And he says, I want, you to, I want to introduce you to my brother who's coming to UT this next year. So we went down there, and his brother is um, the fourth from the right here, kind of behind, and his name's Leif. They're, they're a good Norwegian family. He's Eric, Leif, Leif, and Eric, sons, right? <laughs> and um, I met the family and, uh, and began to... Um, <clears throat> uh, minister to Leaf, and when he came, and they're just such opposite personalities as brothers, but it was really a lot of fun. And then so now there were, there were three of us. Then the next year, uh, Leaf then um, got two more of the guys in there that are kind of in the center, the guy with the hat and the guy with the glasses right behind him, uh, Robert and Danny, and um, uh, began to... Um, uh, um, minister to them and uh, <clears throat> invest in them. And, and, and so then what happened then was there, then the following year, those two guys um, began to minister to a guy named Johnny that's in the middle there. And then Johnny, in turn, the following year, uh, introduced us to Bob, who's over there. And what was crazy about this is that this was all kind of sponta like spontaneous combustion. And um, uh, a number of years ago, I was at uh, Glen Airy, and a guy came to work as an intern for me, and we got to comparing notes with Jason and I, and it turned out that Jason, who was from uh, the Davis area, was a seventh generation from these guys in terms of the multiplication process, one at a time. And so, you know, Danny in the middle, the guy, the kind of the tall guy right in the middle, uh, <clears throat> is a pastor. Uh, he's planted 32 churches in Central Texas. Others are business leaders. You know, uh, one of them, Johnny, uh, in the middle, has been a church planner uh, abroad in uh, uh, Southeast Asia and other places like that. But as we began to compare notes and you heard the stories of what God had been doing over their life, I was just, I was just in tears, just stunned by the global impact that these guys have had. And then to kind of come back together and just say, okay, guys, <laughs> it's amazing what God has done. And it's not like they've all had an easy life either. You know, there's, they've gone through crucibles. But the idea is, okay, in the years that we have left, how do we finish strong? I want to tell you one thing today, too. 
He said, these guys have been praying for you guys all week. And they're just saying, let's keep the investment going, right? They say, let's, let's, see, let's see another group rise up out of this generation. And, uh, and, and it's, it's uh, you know, I just covet those prayers so much. But I just thought, if I'm coming here, I got to let these guys know in some ways that I'm going back to my roots with students here. And they, and they were just like, all in, we're praying. You know, we want to see God do this again. And amazing, isn't it? That generations removed and miles removed, that we're still a part of the same team like this. So what do we do once we banded together? Well, one of the things that we did, as I said, I was walking around campus praying, but we really banded together to pray because we were just this little small band of people in this big campus. And it wasn't like we joined a big ministry group or anything else like that. So we just began to pray. And um, we would spend every quarter a day of prayer and fasting together and just praying for the campus, praying for people that we knew. And we would also pray. We had these little cards that were uh, uh, descriptions of of countries around the world and people groups all over the world. And we would pray for uh, specific people groups all over the world. And what was interesting, uh, I was, one of the guys there, I was, at, I, I was speaking to a, um, a men's retreat uh, about a month ago. <laughs> and it's interesting, too, because that, that men's retreat was for a group of men from a church that was founded by one of those guys' sons. <laughs> And to me, it was kind of like, it was so remarkable to say, man, just stay connected generationally. And then there was a guy there from um, Serbia, and, one, and Bob, who was with me there, he says, he says, man, he says, that was one of the cards that I would pray for, you know? And they had a great time. He says, you know, could this guy have been one of the answers to prayer from those years back? And so we would pray like this. Um, when we came to Irvine, uh, we had a situation where um, there hadn't been, at least in, in the Navigators, um, really a successful ministry in urban areas in terms of ministry, you know, in major metropolitan areas. They, they were small Midwest towns, you know, places like this. And uh, when they asked me to go, I thought, oh, this is great, you know, because, I mean, for me to come back to the West Coast and kind of have, have kind of the, especially the Asian diversity that was there. I thought, this is like coming back to my hometown, you know. <laughs> I, I was used to kid people at Texas because they would, they would, when I was telling you about the cultural misappropriation, you know, my name and everything else like this, I, I understand, I understand. When I came to this country, all you white faces and names all sounded alike, looked alike, you know, I get it, I get it, you know. <laughs> so... Uh, but when we got to Irvine, um, God, God said, look, <clears throat> there are so many Christian ministries on campus. He said, I just don't want you to go in there and just kind of rearrange the fish in, into different aquariums. And, um, and so he said, I want you to start with people that don't know Christ. And if Christians come up and say, I'd like to join your ministry, you could say, well, I appreciate that, but there's a really good ministry over here, or you could, there's another good one over there. And at... And so then Patricia and I would show up on campus, and it was like, you know, that was it, you know. Batman and Robin, you know, here we go. And uh, we would show up, and we would pray across the campus. 
and say, where, where, where is he? Where is she? And at the end of the first year, there were two women and two men. And, you know, if you're being a, a missionary and you're being supported by a group of people, they're looking for results. And at the end of the year, you can say, well, we've got two guys and two gals. That's it. But we continue to pray. And uh, um, one of the things that we had was that we had a remarkable prayer support team. You know, but it was just as unlikely cast of characters. There were some students there. There were elderly couples. There was kind of all... And um, some reason, some way, somehow, it, it fell into our hands that we had a, uh, a roster of the names of everybody that lived in all the dorms at UCI. I don't know if that was even legal, but, we, <laughs> but we, we had this. And so what we did was that we, we cut it all up and we sent specific names to all of our prayer supporters and say, would you pray for these 10? And would you pray for these 10? And we would get calls then. You know, there'd be an elderly couple member, Bob and Jody Garrett. They would call up and say, well, I've been praying for Joe. Has he come to Christ yet? <laughs> you know? and, and so we began to pray that way. And um, what happened was that by the time that we got to the fourth year on the campus, it was the largest ministry on campus that nobody knew anything about because there were no meetings or no formations. If you had looked at the chart, you start with the four, and then it would start, these branches would go out, and then there'd be another cluster that, of people that had come to Christ through this person, and the people that had come to Christ through this person, and it spread, because it, it, it went in, and we had, we had Filipino and Korean kids in there, and they were going back, and whole households in the Filipino community were coming to Christ, and whole households in the Korean community were coming to Christ. And so this thing just began to explode. And so by the fourth year, it was like this massive chart of all of these groupings like this, you know, in, in terms of a network, sort of a diagram. And we would pray. And people would pray. And we would spend days in prayer and fasting for the campus. And here, in this case, praying fasting specifically by name for people in the campus, you know. And so, you know, are you strategically praying like that? Are you going back and saying, I'm going to pray for everybody in this dormitory, or I'm going to pray for everybody in this class, or I'm going to pray for everybody that's in this apartment complex that we could have contact with, and begin to ask God, where is he? Where is she? You know, and then continue to pray. And there were, there were places like at Irvine here, we were talking about a dinner last night, where God led us to this one particular dorm where uh, the, the, the first groups came out of, the first folks came out of. And when we say we're doing Bible study in this dorm, everybody would look at us like, are you kidding me? That dorm? That dorm? It was, the, it was the dormitory where if anything bad happened on the campus, the campus cops would go straight to that dorm first and then expand their investigation. And yet, uh, on the guy's side, um, I, I, it was unbelievable the number of guys that came to Christ, and on the women's side too. And uh, they never they never lost their kind of spunky spirit, but but you know it was like they were in the scriptures. And so, you know, I would encourage you that that's that's what we do. Is that spiritual warfare? We're asking God to pray, pray, you know. For, for the harvest. Pray for laborers in the harvest. Pray for 
that individual. We don't know who that is, but do you believe that God can lead you to one person that needs you in their life? Just one. And I believe God will answer that prayer. And can you imagine that if you come back to this conference next year and each of you brings that one, not asking for a bunch, just one. Can you trust God for one? And then, you know, I, I talked about studying the Word. That was the team that would get up and meet every morning at 6.30, you know, and uh, on Saturday mornings and study the Word and the investment in the Word. And it was interesting when we were getting together, they were still talking about some of those Bible studies and some of the things that we discussed in those studies. And I'm thinking, 50 years ago, and you still remember that study in 2 Corinthians and what we talked about, you know? And I thought, that's, that's unbelievable. But another part of the study of the Word, too, I would say is I think that in terms of reaching people today's world, it's going to take you engaging them in the Scriptures. When I came to UT, we were right in the middle of basically, you know, the, there's a movie out called The Jesus Revolution, right? You, you might have heard about that. I haven't seen it yet, but I, I, I kind of know the story because I kind of lived it. Is that when we went to UT and I, we, we were sharing, people, sharing with Christ with people, God was doing something amazing. And you could literally talk to three people, cold turkey, total strangers, and know that one out of three would accept Christ. It was just staggering that God was just doing that. So it was like, okay, let's just go talk to as many people as we can because they were coming to Christ like that. And then over the next years, what we began to see that it began to diminish. And then we might have to say, okay, then that's where we developed uh, an evangelistic study in the book of John, where we study the first three chapters of John. And, and, then and after three weeks, usually, of, of just kind of studying the scriptures, people come to Christ. And then eventually, though, it wasn't, that wasn't enough. And we were saying that if we, can, if we could encourage people to study the Scriptures with us, it might take months, but they would come to Christ. And, and one, of the, one of the guys in this dormitory, I remember, was a guy named Craig that was living across the hall from one of these guys. And Craig, we asked Craig if he wanted to come to study, and he began to talk about how you know, Christians are stupid and the Bible's stupid and, and uh, you know, it's got so many errors and things like that. And I said, well, that's fine. If, why don't you come on over? And he says, yeah, I'd, I says, I'd love to be involved in that study to show you guys how out to lunch you are. <laughs> and it was interesting because we would get into the scriptures and we'd be studying John and he would raise his objections and we'd say, well, you know, is that what Jesus is saying here? No, no. And after a few months, he just, there were several weeks where he didn't say anything. And I said, Craig, you haven't said anything in the last couple of sessions. What's going on? He just kind of looked at me and says, it's all true, isn't it? <laughs> and he committed his life to Christ, and he's still faithful to the Lord to this day. And, and, and it happened in Davis, where we ended up in a, a dormitory, I mean, in a fraternity house, and a couple of the guys, the key guys, wanted to move out of the, out of the fraternity, and I said, no, that's your sphere of influence. And they stayed there, and the next year they were elected the president and the treasurer of the fraternity. 
And I asked the guys in the fraternity, why did you elect these guys president and treasurer? Because he said, well, well, they're the only two guys we would trust <laughs> in that role. <laughs> you know? And so they began to ask guys if they wanted to kind of study the scriptures and kind of, I don't know, fraternity guy hours or something. The only time we could meet was kind of midweek at like 1130 at night. <laughs> so I kind of dragged myself over there late at night <clears throat> and we would study and uh, we were started in John. And... Uh, they would, they would start out initially and say, okay, why do you Christians do this? And I said, what do you mean, why do you Christians do this? Well, we saw this on the news. We read this in the newspaper. You know, we saw this happening over here. Why do you guys do that? And I said, well, you know, that's a good question. Let's, let's see if Christ is like that. And we would, get, and we would continue on in, in the scriptures. And, uh, and a few months later, I realized something had changed, that their vocabulary had changed. And as they're talking, they're talking about Christians. They were talking about themselves, who weren't Christians. And then they would talk about me, but I wasn't a Christian. I was really their friend that was helping them understand who Jesus was. And it was interesting to see how, in their heart, they would really begin to fall in love with Jesus, you know? And, and as, he's, as, he's, as Jesus is battling the Pharisees, these guys would be cheering for Jesus, you know, and everything else like that. And every single one of those guys became a follower of Christ. So the study of the scriptures is not just for you and me, but I think it's essential in this day and age where the biblical worldview of people is so far away that we've got to get we've got to get people to the scriptures. I think that one thing that I see in you all that I think is really helpful is you all are an incredibly loving group of people. And the reason, the reason that people were coming to Christ so quickly was at that point in time when it was one out of three, the culture, let's say if this is the cross here, the culture was so close to the cross in terms of understanding that all you had to do was share the word of God and the message, and, and that message could be met with faith. But as the culture shifted further away from that, you couldn't, you couldn't talk as if people were right there. And what had, to, what had to happen is that people had to see kind of the hope of that and begin then to kind of move toward faith. And the further away was that because I had a friend that was sharing something like that, and a guy looked up to him and said, you mean you came all the way here to tell people that? It, it wasn't that they were antagonistic, it was just irrelevant in their worldview. So I think the further away people are from Christ, what we have to do is begin with the position where we love them, and they begin to kind of come into our lives and feel, feel that love. And then as closer they get, they begin to see the hope in us, and as they begin to see the hope in us, they can, they can begin to be hungry for the truth to which they can respond in faith and come to Christ. But we've got to hang in there for the hall a lot of times with our friends that don't know Christ and understand where they are. So then the other thing that we did as a team was that we served. Mark 10, 45 says, you know, that for the Son of Man also came not to, not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And we thought, you know, one of the core 
definitions of what it means to be a disciple is to be a servant. So we thought, okay, we're a bunch of college students. How do we do that? Well, what we did was that uh, after our Bible study on Saturday mornings every other week, what we did was that we found um, widows in the community. And what we would do is that we would go out to the widows' homes and make repairs, repair their car, wash their car, clean their house, take care of them. And we would just do service projects like that. And so a part of the discipling process was for us to learn to de develop the heart to serve. And it was interesting, too, because even, even people that don't know Christ, there's, that can spark something in them, to be involved in serving other people. And, uh, and it expanded. Um, we, 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 you know, we had some guys that were kind of musical, and so what we would do is that we would go to a senior citizen's home, and we would do a worship service. Now, we had an ulterior motive in there. <laughs> we, we realized that a lot of these homes and places like that were probably populated by men and women who, in many ways, had been kind of isolated and cast away from the world, but were faithful followers of Christ who are real prayer warriors. And so what we did was that we began to develop this whole network of seniors that were praying for us on campus. And so we would serve, right? Do good wherever we could, we could to help out. And then in, in those cases, we'd say, hey, would you pray for us? <laughs> you know, here's some, here's some folks' names, that, you know, that would you pray for us? And, and so that's an opportunity for you all, too, to say, how do, how do I look out in the world and find opportunities to serve? And these people that you're discipling or people that you want to you share Christ with, why don't you bring them into the fold by just, let's go do some good. Let's make a difference. Let's take care of people. Let's serve people. And that opens up the heart, doesn't it? And then we had the thought then is that Jesus says, I'm among you. And so we thought, okay, we've got to be among people. And I think this is a huge, huge, huge word in my mind. Because what, would hap what was happening in a lot of the campus ministries we were seeing is that as soon as somebody would come to Christ, you were, they were extracted from the campus context and moved away. And I see that, I see that in, the, in the professional world where people are not really engaged with the people at work, but they're primary relationships are all with people outside of work. And, and what, what the Lord has done for me and Patricia is like our, our deepest relationships are in that world. And God keeps pushing us deeper into the world. So what we did here was we said, okay, maybe, maybe for a year you come out, but then what we're going to do is that in pairs, we're going to have you pray to go back into the dorm. And our strategy was to have at least two people as roommates on every single floor of every single dorm at the University of Texas. And over the next four to five years, we, we were able to do that. Now, every one of them has, they're on board, right, as an influencer on their floor and, and sharing Christ with people. And um, <clears throat> um, it, it's not easy and it's kind of crazy but at the same time, we were doing that. It was the same, same thing with talk, telling those guys, you're a fraternity. Stay with it, you know. 
Be an influencer there. Learn to live among the lost. And, um, and so this, that was one of the key principles there. And then the last part of it is that we just became a really a company of the committed. That was a book by uh, Elton Trueblood that I uh, shared with you the other day, uh, yesterday. Um, and, I, and I just want to kind of, this, you know, at the very beginning I talked about being dedicated, right? Romans 12.1. In those days, uh, I was really influenced by a book uh, that was written by a guy named Douglas Hyde. And Hyde had been a very, very committed, active uh, communist and a communist activist that had converted to Christ. And, but then as he had gotten involved uh, in the church and in Christian ministry, he was, really, he was really stricken by the fact that <clears throat> there didn't seem to be the same level of commitment. And so in his book, I'm going to write a chapter, I'm going to read something here from his book, and, and, and what we're not trying to do is glorify communism here, but what we're trying to do is help you understand how powerful it is to be truly dedicated to something. And we think we're dedicated, but we're really not all in. And so he writes here, he says, often ex-communists meeting together can talk of the old days when we were in the party rather like old soldiers discussing nostalgically the campaigns they shared in the past. And we had been doing this. We had talked of old comrades who now saw themselves as our enemies, of the campaigns in which we engaged together. Then very wistfully, he said, do you remember what life was really like in the party? You got up in the morning, and as you shaved, you were thinking of the jobs you would do for communism that day. You went down to breakfast and read the Daily Worker to get the party line, to get the shot and shell for a fight in which you were already involved. You read every item in the paper wondering how you might be able to use it for the cause. He says, I'd never been interested in a sport, but I read the sports pages in order to be able to dis discuss sport with others and to be able to say to them, have you read this in the Daily Worker? And I would follow this through by giving them the paper in the hope that they might turn from the sports pages and read the political ones too. On the bus or train on my way to work, I read the Daily Worker as ostentatiously as I could, holding it up so that others might read the headlines and perhaps be influenced by them. I took two copies of the paper with me. The second one I left on the seat in the hope that someone would pick it up and read it. And when I got to work, I kept the Daily Worker circulating one worker after another would take it outside, read it for a few minutes, and bring it back to me again. At lunchtime in the canteen or the restaurant, I would try to start conversations with those with whom I was eating. I made a practice of sitting with different groups in order to spread my influence as widely as I could. I did not thrust communism down their throats, but steered our conversations in such a way that they could be brought around to politics or, if possible, to the campaigns with the, which the party was conducting at the time. And before I left my place of work at night, there was a quick meeting of the factory group or cell, and there we discussed in a few minutes the successes and failures of the day. And we discussed, too, what we hoped to be able to do on the following day. I dashed home, had a quick meal, and then went out, maybe to attend classes, maybe to be a tutor, maybe to join some communist campaign going from door to door, canvassing, or standing at the side of the road selling communist papers, 
doing something for communism. And I went home at night and dreamed of the jobs I was going to do for communism the next day. Rather sadly, he added, you know, life had some meaning and some purpose in those days. Life was good in the Communist Party. There is something about commitment, true commitment, that brings our lives alive. And I would, I, would just, I would just challenge you to really think about that level of dedication and whether you all are creating here a company of the committed in this way to the Lord and to his purposes on the earth. I, I just want to say the world needs you. <laughs> The world needs you. And, and, and God has made you to make a difference that only you can make. I want to end here by sharing one last story. And it, it goes really to the heart of the, everything that we've been talking about. And it's a story of, of the guy that really poured his life into me. Um, <clears throat> I'd come home from work one afternoon and uh, I looked at Patricia and immediately sensed something, and I said, Patricia, what's wrong? And she just looked at me with tears in her eyes and said, Dan, I don't, I, I don't know how to tell you this, but I just got a call, and uh, Charlie has just died. And it was one of those moments where, you know, you can't breathe, your heart aches, and uh, all these things are flashing through your head. Um, Charlie had been to me uh, not only a mentor, um, but a father figure uh, where my dad was absent. Um, and uh, eventually, uh, the best man at my wedding. And um, so <clears throat> I, um, the schedules being what they were, I, I wasn't able to fly down. I, the only alternative I had was to jump in our car uh, in Colorado and drive down to Temple, Texas for the memorial service. So I got there just in time for the memorial service and uh, we're in there and this church is just filled with people and, uh, and I honestly, I can't remember anything that the pastor said. But at one point toward the end, he said, he said, those of you who can say that your lives were permanently touched and changed by your interaction with Charlie, please come up here and stand with me. So I got up pretty quickly, you know, uh, on the platform by the, by the pulpit and, and a handful there. And then there was just this stirring in the church. And before you knew it, the aisles to both sides all the way to the doors were filled with people. And I'm looking, I'm looking at the people in this crowd and I'm thinking, man, you know, there's day laborers, there's doctors, there's businessmen, there's students, there's people from other parts of the world, you know, there's young and old. And I thought, you know, in that moment, if, if a stranger had come into the church at that moment and they would have looked at that, they would have thought, who is Charlie? That he had had this kind of influence on everybody. And, and so I began to think about that because I had a long drive back home to think about that issue. 
Charlie, um, if you'd met him, wouldn't have seemed remarkable in any, any, any way. Um, you know, it wasn't like he was a, a noted business person or anything else like that. Charlie was the guy that was uh, prematurely balding, had a nose that was a little bit too big for his face. He had big hands that had known really hard work, and he was prone to wearing kind of faded Western shirts and kind of faded jeans and dusty boots. And, um, you know, um, and, and so we were quite the pair, right? The kid that was fresh off the boat from Japan and this guy. And, uh, uh, you know, as Charlie is uh, <clears throat> mentoring me and working with me, every once in a while he'd get frustrated and uh, he would throw up his hands and say, Dan, he says, I'm, I'm, I'm really highly trained in the veterinary sciences to train thoroughbred horses, and I don't know what I'm doing spending time trying to break a mule like you. <laughs> but we had this remarkable relationship. You know, he would, he would uh, <clears throat> introduce me to all these, I could just loosely say agricultural jokes and maxims, and I introduced him to Bruce Lee and the martial arts, you know. <laughs> And, uh, and, and so that was our, our, was our journey. And um, as I began to think about it, though, you know, there was also something about Charlie that there were these blue eyes that would just pierce you, but not in a frightening way. They were just so full of compassion and goodness that, you know, you, you, you were just drawn to him, or at least I was. So as I'm driving back, I thought, what was it about Charlie that made such a difference in the lives of people? And the first thing that I thought about was Charlie's uh, sense of purpose. And he would, he would tell me, Dan, he says, your, your, your life is too valuable to just spend it on trying to achieve earthly success and all those things. Live your life to make a difference in people. And um, A.W. Tozier, you know, a, a writer and uh, a preacher of the last century, said, no Christian has the right to give themselves to things which rot, rust, are consumed, or die. You're too valuable to give your life to those sorts of things. And that's the way Charlie lived. So that in, in any encounter with the person, whether it was a couple of minutes here, you know, like Patricia with Ruby, or an investment that went on for years. The driving thing about Charlie in terms of his interaction with people is how can I make a difference in this moment, in this person's life? The second thing about Charlie was his identity. You know, I talk with leaders all the time and they, you know, they've got their own idea of who they are and a lot of times how important they are, you know? or they view their identity through their success or their accomplishments or things like that. And some of the more enlightened ones will think about things like, well, I'm trying to be a servant leader, which is a real valid concept. But I've asked them sometimes to push, uh, push on that a little bit with them. And, and I find out that a lot of times even that concept of a servant leader is just a technique because I said, well, if that doesn't work, what are you going to do? And they said, well, we'll do something different. I thought, yeah, okay, you don't get this. Charlie's identity was that of a servant, period. A servant that had been given the privilege of leading, you know, but he was a servant first. And um, it reminded me of something that C.S. Lewis wrote in an essay. 
where Lewis said, we don't, we don't live in the company of mere mortals. The arts, the civilization, culture, all the great accomplishments of history are like the life of a gnat compared to the immortals. The immortals are the ones whom we love, we laugh with, we eat with, you know, that we're with. These are immortals. And if we could view people as immortals like that, what an astounding privilege it is to serve them. And I'll talk to leaders about this all the time, and I say, look, what if you walk by the construction site that your company's building, and you looked at all these people that are laboring there, and you could look at them and say, those are all immortals. How would it change the way you serve and lead your organization, right? And so when you walk back across the campus, these are not just mere people. These are immortals. Now, they could be immortals to eternal horror, you know, or to eternal glory. But when you look at people, do you, are you seized with the privilege of serving others? It's a, it's a high privilege, isn't it? Then the third thing is Charlie's vision. And with leaders, a lot of times I'm looking and they have vision. <clears throat> There's guys that can see far into the future, see the big picture. They can see the smallest detail. But Charlie's vision was really different. And I think this is the vision that you all are onto, that I would just call third generation vision. And it's a challenge. It's a challenge. One way I try to explain it, and I can't say that we're, we've got it figured out or perfect, but it's like in parenting. If you're a first-generation parent, then basically you're raising your kids, and we, we, Patricia and I laugh about this, is that we're, we were high-capacity people but low-capacity parents, I think. <laughs> but you think, okay, if, if our kid can get to the junior-senior prom, and by the time that they're there, they can perform basic hygiene, dress themselves, and not embarrass the family, you know, and do what they're told. Well, okay, we're, we've, we, you know, we'll spike the ball, right? And there are a lot of leaders of organizations that are that way. The people exist for their convenience, and if they don't embarrass the company and do what they're told, that's fine. A second-generation parent will say, okay, how do, I, how do I invest in the child in such a way that they become good citizens, good husbands and wives, good parents, you know, good workers in their community, you know, good, good folks. Now, I think a lot of, there are a lot of leaders that are that way, that they're trying to make the investment in people such that they've got good people like that. And I think that's an admirable thing. But Charlie had what I would just call the third generation vision. And that's like when you stop and think about investing in your kids, you think, okay, how do I invest in them in this moment such as that the grandkids are good citizens, good husbands and wives, you know, good parents, etc. Now you're beginning to see a world in a whole different way. And that's what multiplication and discipleship is about. Do we see the investment that we're making in people in such a way that a generation that you cannot even see right now is exploding out there like that, right? 
There was a Greek philosopher who said, don't leave your message in ink, leave it in the lives of men. That's the legacy piece. So by the time I got back to Colorado, I think I thought I had it pretty wrapped up. I thought that was, that was pretty, pretty profound. And uh, a few months later, I got another call, and this time it was from Kay, uh, Charlie's wife. And she was coming through town to go to a retreat, and she asked if she could see me. And, uh, and so, uh, yeah, of course. And so I went down to uh, the Village Inn, which is a little coffee house, um, off the freeway, and I, I was a little late there, and, but she was already seated there, and when I walked in the restaurant door, she got up from her table, and we met kind of in the middle of the restaurant, and she gave me the biggest hug, and then with tears in her eyes, she said, Dan, Charlie loved you so much. And to me, that was kind of the bow around the gift of his life. And I, and I hope that as you're out there with people, that people understand how much you love them. If you do, I think you'll avoid this. Somerset Maugham, in his book of Human Bondage, wrote about an older couple that had passed away in a small town. And the epitaph was that he wrote of their lives was, and when they were gone, it was as if they had never been. I hope that's not your epitaph, but I hope that your epitaph would be that there would be aisles full of people out to the doors saying, she made a difference in my life. He made a difference in my life. Let's pray. Lord, it's such, a, such an overwhelming and awesome privilege to be in your presence this day. And I pray that each one of us would hear you calling us. To, to love you, to be with you, and to accept your offer, unbelievable offer to be our God. And to, and to serve you and to love you and to walk with you to make a difference in the lives of people in this world. To shed your grace and glory to the world. So Father, I pray that nobody here would leave this week without clearly hearing that, grabbing hold of that, and making the commitment to dedicate themselves as an offering to you, a living sacrifice, so that through us, you could show the world who you are. Thank you for the awesome opportunity to be here with such an incredible group of people. In Jesus' name, amen.